Kids, I've got great news for you. I mean, great news. Christmas is less than a week away. By this point, next week, all the gifts will be opened and you will even be tired of a few of them. Like you, you might have even broken a couple by this point next week. Adults, I've got great news for you. It's not that Christmas is a day away, but you're one day closer to Jesus returning. One day closer. That's great news. And you understand that more than the kids do. They're looking for a week away. We're looking towards an eternal perspective, and, and we're one day closer. So one point. I only have one point for this whole sermon. doesn't mean I'm not going to drag it out, but I have one point. And here it is, simply this. God is worthy, and his reward is worth the wait. God is worthy, and his reward is worth the wait. Stumbled upon this quote from Blaise Pascal. He was a 17th century philosopher. Uh, Technically speaking, he was a mathematician who can also be philosophers. But he said, men despise religion. They hate it, and they're afraid it might be true. The cure for this is first to show that religion is not contrary to reason, but worthy of reverence and respect. Next, to make it attractive. Make good men wish it were true, and then show them that it is. There's a lot I could say about this uh, one verse. But let me say a couple of things. During this Advent season, we remember that God is worthy. He is worthy of our worship. If you've been around Mitch Road any length of time, you've heard me say this multiple times, but I need to constantly remind you that Christianity is the only world religion where our God comes to us. Every other world religion, every other cult, you've got to work your way up by some effort to earn it. Emmanuel, God comes down to us in the form of a baby in a smelly cattle stall in a cave to show us what love looks like and to lead us all home. Who would do that? William Grindall puts it this way. How can God stoop lower than to come and dwell with the poor, humble soul, which is more than if he had said, such a one should dwell with him. For a beggar to live in the court is not so much as the king to dwell with him in his cottage. And our God comes to us. That's the God that we worship. That's Christianity. Our God comes to us in our pain, in our despair, in our sin, in our cancer, in our trials, in our doubts, in our uncertainty. God comes down to us to be with us. Our Emmanuel, he is worthy of our worship. And as Pascal said, worthy, true, and attractive, it's true. I mean, after all, who could make this up? All the religions that are made up are made up in a way that we can somehow earn it or achieve it. But Christianity pulls the rug out from under us in the sense that there's nothing we can do about it. Grace is so unsettling. It's, uh, it's unmerited, unconditional grace to us. It's true. Why would anybody make that up? It actually strips the power from us to control God. And that's why we know it's true. Because God gave it to us. And it's attractive It's attractive because we think that we have to give gifts. We have to somehow sacrifice to God to get him to like us. But here we have a God who gives us gifts. And that's what we've been talking about this Advent season. That Advent is, like I've said, a dual threat. 
Not only has Christ come, but it's a reminder that he will come again. And he comes with a crown, and he comes with treasure, and he comes with an inheritance. And today what we'll talk about is he comes with rewards, which are slightly different than the other ones that we've talked about. And so here's the introduction, Revelation chapter 22. This is what we started with. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I I am coming with my recompense. I am coming to repair anything that has been lost. I'm coming, as we discussed last week, with my inheritance, which is unperishable, unfading. It's actually unavoidable, undefiled, kept in heaven for you. I am coming with these things to reward you. I am coming to pay back for everything you've lost in this life. I'm coming to make all things new. I've come the first time with a glimmer of hope to show you what love and what grace looks like and what mercy looks like, and I am coming again to put everything back in its right place. That's what God promises during this season, to come into this darkness and make it light again. And so here's what we want to do. I want to walk briefly through a biblical history of rewards. Now, I'm going to read a lot of scripture to you, like a lot of scripture. It's not going to be all on the text. We can't get on the screen, but you have Bibles, right? And if you don't have a Bible, I'll buy you a Bible if you can't afford it. I'm like I already mentioned, I'm a visual person, so I have to have the text. I can't do it on the phone. Some of you can, I know, but I'm kind of old school that way. I got to have the text. So I'm going to read all of this to you. You're going to have to listen or you're going to have to turn there very quickly. Now, if you're not a believer, let me suggest this. Here's why we're doing this. You don't need me to inspire you. You have Hallmark movies for that. There's like 39 of them last time I looked it up, which is as many books that are in the Old Testament. You can read one for each book in the Old Testament. Watch one for you. You know, you, you, you can find songs. You can read poetry to inspire you. If you're not a believer, you need to come to a church where we talk about who God is through Scripture. We're actually engaging with that. And if you are a believer, sometimes what we're doing is a little bit different today than what we normally do. Uh, I normally take a text, look at it, preach through that text. Today what we're doing is what we call a biblical history. We're going from Genesis all the way to Revelation and stringing together a biblical theology of reward. And so here we go. Abraham, God reminds us that he gives us rewards when we've done nothing for it. It says in Genesis 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I'm your, I'm your shield, and your reward will be very great. Here, Abraham was promised to have kids. He couldn't have kids. Abraham, in his prayers, was like, look at Sarah. Look at me. How are we ever going to have kids? But you've promised it. I have no idea how this is going to work out. Am I going to have to give all of my belongings, all of my earthly inheritance to Eliezer of Damascus, he says in Genesis 15? Are you going to give me a son that I can turn it over to? And God says, fear not. I'm your reward. And your reward will be very great, Abraham. David reminds us that God rewards us when we love our enemies. Uh, Saul says to David, when David uh, was not willing to kill Saul, who wanted to kill David. And, And not to go through this too much because we don't have enough time, but Saul was threatened by David's uh 
prodigious abilities. And so through that process, Saul wanted to kill David. David fled from Saul, although he had multiple occasions to kill him. He decided not to because he didn't want to touch the Lord's anointed. And on two occasions, Saul recognizes that and he says, the Lord will reward you for the good that you have done. I can't reward you. I'm trying to kill you. <laughs> but the Lord will reward you. That's in 1 Samuel 24. And then in 1 Samuel 26, again, he says, the Lord rewards every person for righteousness and faithfulness. Sit on that. The Lord is going to reward every person for righteousness and faithfulness. And then in David's song of deliverance, this is 2 Samuel 22. Just write these verses down if you can't turn there quick enough. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanliness of my hands. He has rewarded me. And he couldn't do everything. Uh, he wasn't able to build the temple. He had too, many, too much blood on his hands for that. But he recognized theologically, the Lord will reward me for everything that I have done. Ruth reminds us, and I'm just skipping over these. There's way too many verses to do all of them. Uh, but Ruth reminds us that the Lord rewards us when nobody sees. Boaz said, all that you have done, this is Ruth chapter 2, for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and your mother and your native land and you've come to a people that you did not know. And the Lord will repay you for what you've done. And the full reward will be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wing you have taken refuge. So here Boaz speaks to Ruth, who has left everything. Just imagine this, especially as family comes in town, has left everything for her mother-in-law. You know, sometimes mother-in-laws come to live with you. Uh, she left everything, her land, and went to live with her mother-in-law to take care of her mother-in-law. And Boaz says, I see it. Nobody else has seen it, but the Lord sees it, and he'll reward you for everything that you've given up. The prophets, all throughout the prophets, they talk about being rewarded from the Lord. Uh, Isaiah 40.10, Isaiah 62.11, just for starters, both say this uh, similar phrase, behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense is before him and he will tend his flock like a shepherd and he will gather the lambs in his arms. Jeremiah 32, O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to the ways, his eyes are open to the ways of all of his children rewarding each one according to their ways and to the fruits of their deeds. This is all throughout Scripture. You, you can't, once you see it, you can't get away from it. That the Lord sees when we love our enemies. He sees what we do in secret. He sees what we do in private. He sees what we've lost in this life. And the motivation time and time and time again throughout Genesis all the way to Revelation is your king is coming back and he's going to reward you. He sees those long nights that you spent in prayer. He sees that time you visited that person in the hospital. He sees that time you tried to clumsily share your faith and it didn't go anywhere, but your heart was beating a mile a minute and you got it out and invited him to church. He sees that and he rewards you. He sees your faithfulness in giving. He sees your tenderness with your overbearing wife. He sees your faithfulness to your husband. He sees your grace given to the kids when they don't deserve it. He sees all of that. He says, I'm going to reward you. 
I'm going to repair all of it. It was the main motivation in Jesus' Sermon in the Mount. I'm going to read from this text a little bit, and I'm just going to kind of skim through it, but this is Matthew chapter 6. If you want to turn there, you can practice righteous before people, but then your reward will be established in this earth. Verse 1, or you can be praised by people in this life who have received their reward. Verse 2, or verse 4, when your giving's done in secret, the Lord will reward you. He starts to talk about prayer. Verse 5 and 6, he says, look, you can pray in a way and get your reward there. String together some eloquent words in your Sunday school. Have everybody say, oh, what a great prayer. And you get your reward. Or you can pray in secret. And what, what happens? Well, verse 6, the Lord will reward you. Or when you fast, you can do it in a way, you can live life as a Christian in a way that's showy. In other words, in a way that everybody sees what you're doing. Or you can practice Christianity sometimes in secret. And as it says in verse 18, and the Lord will reward you. And, and then think about Luke uh, chapter 19, uh, the parable of the 10 minutes. God gives three different people a small business loan. He gives them 10 minutes each. And he says, now, now go invest, go engage in business. And one guy goes out and he makes 10 more minutes. Another guy goes out, returns half the investment, five minutes. Another guy goes out, buries it in the ground, doesn't return anything. For the first two, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've given 10 minutes, you'll be over 10 cities in the new heavens and the new earth. Well done, good and faithful servant. You return five. You'll be over five cities. So they get, here's what establishes in this parable, they get different rewards, different amounts, different capacities. And then the one who didn't do anything with it didn't get anything. And then Matthew chapter 10, this is the only verse that will be on the screen, but let's read this verse of what Jesus says in Matthew 10. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. They're different rewards depending on how you lived in life. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he's a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Uh, see, it, it's, not, it's about following the Lord not to get this, but as we follow the Lord and we learn to practice love and sacrifice and gentleness and faithfulness, and as we give up of our time and as we give up of our resources to establish and promote a permeating kingdom across this world that cuts through every socioeconomic and racial, uh, geographical and political boundary line as Christianity has done. As we do that, the Lord says, I'm going to reward you. I'm coming back as your king, and I'm going to give you treasure and inheritance and reward. So you're actually technically not losing anything. You're just deferring your investments to eternity. <laughs> That's all you're doing. Now think about the epistles. I'm just going to read three texts here, but let me read them very quickly. Um, 
one from Paul, one from we don't know, and one from John. Whatever you do, this is Colossians 3, work hardly for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. Hebrews chapter 10, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew you had a better possession and abiding one. So don't throw away your confidence. It's your reward. Second John 8, watch yourself so that you may not lose what you've worked for, but gain a full reward. The point is this, God is worthy and his reward is worth the wait. God is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our lives. He's worthy of our sacrifice. He's worthy to follow. There's no God like our God. He's altogether worthy and his rewards, well, they're worth the wait. It's going to be amazing to see what God does. Now, we don't like talking about this. We, we, we talk about grace so much, and I've already covered this a little bit. We're so nervous about the prosperity gospel and this like working for pay kind of thing that we're a little bit uncomfortable with this. But this is not just Jesus deciding who's naughty and who's nice. He's not Santa Claus. But somebody has to judge Somebody has to be there to see all the things that you've done in secret, all the things that you've done in private, all the things that you've given up. Somebody has to be able to judge. And so here's what we have. We have God who says, I will come as a judge. I will judge you. There's a Greek word for this. It's called bema, which means he sits on his judgment seat. It's the same seat that Pilate used. I will sit on my seat and I will judge. And here in Romans 14, it says this. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or why do you despise your brother? We could just pause there. That's a whole sermon. Why do you keep judging other people, Christian or non-Christians? Why do you keep doing that? When you're a Christian, you're free from that. You actually don't have to do that anymore. Christianity frees you from your needless obsession to try to judge others. Here's what he says. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat, the bema. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So there is a judgment seat. Well, God will, Christian or non-Christian, all of us are going to have to give an account to how we've lived our lives, right? And that would be really disheartening were it not for another seat. It's called the Helestrion. And here's we see this seat. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, these are the two thieves on the crosses talking. We indeed justly, we're receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. One thief says to the other thief, we're, we deserve what we get. This is our reward. This is, we, we, we're thieves. This is the way we lived life. Of course it was going to end up in being crucified. That makes complete sense to us. But that guy has done nothing wrong. And I love the way Alistair Begg puts it. And sometimes you find a preacher put something so well, you're like, I, I can't even recreate it. I'm just going to completely copy it. So this comes from Alistair Begg, and there's no way I'm going to say it nearly as good as he does. But he puts himself in the context of this, and he says, imagine this thief going to heaven, and the angel comes up to him, and they say, what are you doing here? We had no idea that you would make it. And the thief says, I, I don't know what I'm doing here either. And he says, well, do you, do you know anything uh, about the doctrine of justification? And the thief says, I've never even heard of it. I have no idea what you're talking about. 
And, and the angel says, well, I've got to go get uh, somebody else. You know, he calls the like senior cherubim. They kind of fly in and they come in. And then, I don't know why I did that. I, I don't think I'm going to get rewarded for that in heaven. And the, the elder statement cherubim come in and they say, well, do you know anything about the doctrine of inspiration? I know nothing. Uh, do you know anything about the Trinity? N- no. Haven't even heard of it. Uh, do you know anything about superlapsarianism? No, I know, I know nothing about any of that. And he says, well, why are you here? And the thief says, the guy on the middle cross said I could be here. That's it. The guy on the middle cross said I could come. Because there is a Bama, there is a judgment seat, but there's a Hilesteron too, which is the mercy seat. That all of us will get things that we don't deserve. More than we could ever imagine. The judgment seat would scare us and would make us works-centered, moralistic people thinking that somehow we could earn our way to a bigger house in the new heavens and the new earth. And were it just to the Bama, we would be lost. But there's a Hilesteron, there's a mercy seat where God says, I, the guy on that middle cross said I could come, that I could be here, that there's a feast somewhere that there's a new heavens and a new earth, that there's treasures and rewards and crowns, and apparently I'm a part of that. It really is that beautiful. That verse, or that word, Hilesteron, is used in Romans 3, 25, Hebrews 9, 5. And I want to say, if you're not a believer, I want to say, first of all, this, come and find mercy now, if you are a believer, and if you're, uh, think, if you're awake, I'm not convinced all of you are, but if you are awake, God, I can see you all. I don't know if you know that sometimes, but I, except for these people behind me, but I'm assuming you're going to keep them accountable if they're asleep. But I can see you, and, uh, and if you are awake, you're thinking, well, how are we going to be rewarded and be rewarded differently and not have covetousness or envy, right? I mean, that's a logical question. Uh, several years ago, I got to do a devotional for Furman's football team, and uh, I ate with the offensive linemen afterwards. And I watched them eat, and it was a thing of, of great joy for me. I never, I, I had my full. I never would want to eat the way they ate. And if I had to eat five more cheeseburgers, I wouldn't want to eat five more cheeseburgers. Our contentment level was the same. Our capacity was massively different. To put it another way, do you think the bat boy in the World Series, I don't know if baseball is still going to exist after this strike, but let's just presume it does. Do you think the bat boy in the World Series is any less overjoyed by being there than the starting pitcher? Totally different capacities. Both are completely overjoyed. And the beauty of this is we're going to get to share and see and enjoy each other's gifts. When my wife gets a pink sweater this uh, Christmas, and she's not getting a pink sweater. That's a hypothetical. But when she gets a pink sweater for Christmas, she opens it up. I'll say, oh, what'd you get? What'd you get? And she'll see it. She'll say, oh, that's going to look so beautiful on you. Not once am I going to think, I wish I got a pink sweater. 
when my when my daughter gets Lululemon, Lululemon, I don't know those. I can't remember how to say that yoga stuff. I'm never going to think. I wish I had some black leggings. <laughs> Nobody bought me. I mean, my legs are so skinny. You know, they look good on me. They'd be slimming. I never. You never think that. You rejoice. You rejoice in the gifts given to other people. And that's the way it's going to be in the new heavens, in the new earth. We're going to look at each other. We're not going to have envy. We're not going to have greed. We're not going to have jealousy issues. We're going to be able to look at each other throughout world history and say, look how the Lord has rewarded you. Look at his grace and look at his mercy to you. So three things very quickly. And let me say this before we do it. Kids, if I had said to you in Thanksgiving... You can have one gift now, or you can wait until Christmas, and I'll give you all the gifts we bought for you. What would you do? Hopefully, number two. And if not, you need to talk to your parents about why you would choose number one. Now, adults, let me put it to you in this way. If I, if I said you can choose every senator and every congressman and every cabinet member, you get to choose all of them, and you get a four-year run. That's all you get, four-year run with them. Or you can have a king whose government is on his shoulders in eternity. Which would you choose? You, you can have social security and take the early payment for less money, or you can have a gospel security that the way we live now will be rewarded in the heavens and in the new earth. Three quick things by way of application. What does this help with? Three things. Number one, it helps us to wait. Advent, as Joan's sister says, uh, Advent is a four-week period that leads up to Christmas. It's a series of events designed not to delay the celebration of Christmas, but to enhance it. It's a kind of delayed gratification that culminates in a satisfaction that is all the richer for the waiting. And what Advent teaches us to do is to do this throughout the rest of the year is to wait upon the Lord. All through the Psalms, wait upon the Lord, wait upon the Lord, wait upon the Lord. That is a spiritual discipline of the saints of Christ to learn how to be worshipful waiters, to wait upon the Lord. Number two, it's, for, it's help for those to wait. Number two, it's help for the weary. Because, look, so many of us are tired and weary. So much going on these last couple of years. We're all tired. We're all weary. And I'll just say pastorally, I don't think it's going to get any better. But I don't think that means you have to get any worse. I don't think you have to cycle up and down with this world and this culture. I, th I think there's a different way. I think you could be completely persecuted and joyful. I think this world and this culture could be struggling and you could be content. I, I, I think there's a different way, but let's recognize that a lot of us are weary. But as it says in Galatians 6, don't grow weary of doing good. You might be, well, are you weary of doing good or are you weary of other things, for starters? But don't grow weary of doing good. Why? For in due season you'll reap a harvest if you don't give up. I have permission to tell this next story. And I say that because it's kind of an intense one. But I do have permission to share it. A law enforcement friend of ours, a member of this congregation, a man who I adore, called me and he said, Andy, you, have to, you need to call me back today. Which, when it's a law enforcement person, I've had enough of those phone calls. I'm like, this is not going to be good. 
But it was a great story. He said, I got called out for a wellness check. There was a guy that uh, said he was going to take his life, and he had all the tools to do it, and he ran out of the house, and we were trying to find him. And so we were going all through east side of Greenville trying to find this guy, and uh, they finally tracked him down. Now, not everybody will know where this is, but probably half of you will. If you go down Devonshire Road, there's a property on the left. The Brights own it. There's two barns, and the second barn is red, and it has the word hope. And the guy that thought about taking his life stumbled upon that property and saw hope and thought, what am I doing? And that's when my law enforcement friend pulled up and found him there and talked to him about it. The backstory behind that barn is this double entendre. It comes up during Christmas. Hope. Hope, people. Hope. But also, they had a daughter named Hope who died years ago. And it's the death of one person's life that years later saved the life of another. So it is with Christ. And that's why we just sang, the hope and fears of all the years are met in you tonight. All the fears that we have as humans and all the hopes that we have as humans are met, all encapsulated in Christ. There's no way around that. And in my favorite Christmas line of all the Christmas lines, the thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn, so fall on your knees. Worship. The thrill of hope. Look, I know you're weary. I hope you're weary in doing good things, right things. And if you are weary, what this teaches us to is hope. And then lastly, it teaches us to wonder. Uh, because it, it's sequential, right? The thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices, fall on your knees, now wonder, worship. Um, Denzel Washington just had a really interesting interview in the New York Times with, uh, I think it was with Maureen Dowd, if I remember correctly, and Denzel Washington said this, New York Times, I'm a God-fearing man. I try not to weary, worry. Fear is contaminated faith. I'll preach. I am, in fact, preaching it. <laughs> the enemy is the inner me, he said. The Bible says in the last days, uh, and I don't know if it's in the last days, it's not my place to say, but it says in the last days, we'll be lovers of ourselves." But the number one photograph today is the selfie. Oh, look at me at the protests. Look at me at the house fire. Follow to me. Listen to me. We're living in a time where people are willing to do anything to get followed. But what is the short and the long-term effects of too much information? It's going too fast. It could be manipulated, and obviously in a myriad of ways. And all the people are being led like sheep to a slaughter, he said in the New York Times. Because the number one photograph is, look at me. But you know what we get at the nativity scene? You can drive around Greenville and you can see nativity scenes set up everywhere. That's the ultimate selfie. It's the ultimate part of Jesus saying, look at me. Look at me willing to come to a manger and be here with you people that I created to come down into your filth and to take on your sin and to take on the punishment. Look at me. This is the ultimate selfie to make us to wonder, to to take our minds off of our obsession with ourselves and to help us to wonder. 
so that while we wait, we don't have to gratify the flesh. While we're weary, we can hope, and we can wonder so that we're not self-absorbed, looking to one day meeting that child king. Last quote, but it's too good not to share. This is the invitation. Come and behold him, born the king of angels. Speak to him or be silent before him. In whatever way that seems right to you, in whatever time, come to him with your empty hands. The great promise is that to come to him who was born at Bethlehem is to find coming to birth within ourselves, something stronger and braver, gladder and kinder and holier than ever we knew before or than ever we could have known without him. So says Frederick Buechner. God is worthy and his rewards Well, they're worth the wait. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And now, Father, we pray, uh, even in this last week of Advent, you give us hearts of joy and that we would rest in you, that we would have uh, plenty of tidings of comfort and joy, not because we got the right gifts, not because the dinner turned out well, not because everybody was kind of was able to make it home this year, but because we're your kids, sons and daughters of the living King, who is coming again to reward us, to bring us inheritance, to invite us to the feast. We pray in your name. Amen.